Thank you for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the emergency medicine podcast recorded at Dream, Queen's Medical Centre, Nottingham. This is The Wheezy Child, Episode 3, Asthma. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. Any guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello once again. I'm still uh, the teaching fellow in emergency medicine. My name is uh, Jamie and I've realised that uh, I've not given my Twitter handle in any of these episodes. So I'm also on Twitter and uh, you can find me at, at McDreamy. Uh, so Dr Phil here. Um, my Twitter handle is still at the ED consultant. And it's Colin here and I still do not have a Twitter handle despite these two gentlemen's best efforts. <laughs> so, uh, all good trilogies come in three parts. We are gathered here in the subterranean world of the emergency department for our third and final uh, part of the uh, Wheezy Child saga, gentlemen. And we have come to asthma, asthma in the child. Uh, so, where shall we begin? So I think in terms of uh, as we would normally do it in the emergency department, so from your history, so obviously these children will present with difficulty in breathing, they will present with wheeziness, they may present with a cough and the cough characteristically is uh, early morning or nocturnal coughing. Uh, often the children will have a diagnosis of asthma already in place um, but the other things you want to get from your history are things like uh, a past history of asthma, uh, their previous hospital attendances uh, and how long their attacks lasted for on each occasion and also what you'd really want to know is whether these children ever ended up in intensive care particularly if they ended up intubated because that will help focus your mind as to how severe their asthma may potentially get. Uh, the other things you need to think about are trigger factors, um, how often the attacks happen, um, their school days, how many school days that they've actually missed, uh, what their usual medication, where they are in their stepwise management, um, and also things like previous, uh, well, rather not previous, but family history of mm. illness. Because again, uh, family history, if everyone's asthmatic, including the cat, then the chances are the child in front of you will more than likely, based on probability, be asthmatic. Uh, so, and and uh, Colin, at what age group of, of children can we start to say, okay, we, we've, we've moved on from a, a viral-induced wheeze now and, and I think we can start to diagnose the, the patient as having asthma? Um, so I think you're kind of mainly looking at school-age children from that point of view. That doesn't mean you can't be diagnosed with it earlier, but I think you've just got to be very cautious with that diagnosis. And it's probably best left to the experts, so the paediatric respiratory physicians, to be di diagnosing um, asthma in children preschool um, and again as Phil said it's all in the history really so you've got these school-aged children who come to you they've had multiple episodes of wheeze in the past and it's worth just digging down and considering what was it that they thought caused it so we talked about viral wheeze in a previous podcast uh, but what we didn't mention there was children who present uh, with uh, intermittent wheeze or various different causes where they didn't really have a cough or a cold before it so maybe there was a trigger and with time those triggers become become obvious is it pollen is it grass is it cats dogs those kind of things um, so I think school-aged children uh, with multiple episodes of wheeze uh, where the triggers uh, can be identified and suppose just like with um, adult patients with asthma there could be an infective exacerbation as well. Yeah absolutely 
um, just like anyone some some uh, asthmatics will have a more of a problem uh, when they get con current uh, illnesses especially viruses and others will be set off by various different things I suppose when you put your stethoscope to the patient's chest, again, you, you hear a wheeze, and you, you may hear other signs that there's a, an infective uh, process going on as well. But I suppose the caveat to that, again, as we said in the violent yeah, use wheeze dog, chest. if they've not got any air entry, they're not going to generate that wheeze. So if you hear no wheeze, please don't be reassured. <laughs> you were trying to think of a rhyme there, weren't you? Um, <laughs> <laughs> if they have no wheeze, they may still have disease. Excellent, there you go. Uh, put that in quotation marks on the Twitter page. I think we need to talk about severity uh, okay. as part of your uh, examination workup. So, like adults, we have the sort of mild, moderate, the moderate, severe, and we have the uh, life threatening. Mm -hmm. So, essentially, with mild, moderate, it's the, uh, they still have the ability to talk in sentences. The SATs are 92% or above, uh, and their peak flow is 50% of best or predicted. And again, looking at sort of physiological parameters. Heart rate less than 140 in children between ages of two and five years, and a heart rate less than 125 in children greater than five years, uh, and a respiratory rate, again, uh, less than 40 in those aged two to five, and less than 30 in those aged uh, over five years. So that's your mild to moderate. Your moderate to severe, they won't be able to complete sentences in one breath, or they could be too breathless to talk or feed. Their stats are less than 92%. Their peak flow is around 33 to 50% best or predicted. And again, it's heart rate greater than the values for those are mild and moderate. So heart rate one, greater than 140 and greater than 125 in your two to five and your greater than five respectively. And again, respirate greater than 40 or greater than 30 in those children aged two to five and five respectively there. So then you go on to then life-threatening uh, features. So if they have any of these features, it's time to get on your rubber trousers and uh, get your squeaky bum ready because uh, these are the children that are very poorly. So cyanosis, SATs less than 92% in air, those with a silent chest, those with a poor respiratory effort, those that uh, are fatigued or looking like they're uh, tending towards exhaustion, or those that are agitated or with a reduced level of consciousness. Any of these features makes them life-threatening. And so these are all the guidelines that are present for the, on the NUH Trust uh, website? Yes, they? they are, yeah. So uh, I'll put a, a copy of that table on our uh, Twitter and Facebook pages uh, for those listening to uh, look at. Okay, so if we're happy that we've uh, patients um, coming in with sort of more mild to moderate um, asthma, um, Colin, what, what would your sort of investigation and management plan be? So again, I think in investigation-wise, uh, there's nothing particularly indicated. Uh, chest x-ray isn't indicated in patients presenting uh, with asthma unless you are very clear that there are definitive focal signs uh, on auscultation uh, which do not improve uh, following treatment, uh, usually with salbutamol, if they fail to improve as predicted, or if they've had these episodes before, they've never had a chest x-ray, uh, and you just want to confirm that there isn't a congenital abnormality or if your mind is going that actually they don't quite fit in with an asthmatic, they've had other problems in the past, there's something in the past medical history that thinks about it. But for the, the barn door asthmatic who's got a diagnosis, who's coming back with an exacerbation with a standard history with nothing concerns you, then no investigations are indicated. Okay. 
And so um, for treatment with these patients with more sort of moderate uh, asthma exacerbations? Phil's given us a rundown of the uh, mild to moderate, moderate to severe and the life-threatening. And the management differs depending on what category they fall into. The mild to moderates can be managed with inhalers, so we'd recommend 10 puffs of salbutamol uh, given uh, and the patient reassessed. Even the mild to moderate group can have some increased work of breathing, so they may need uh, back-to-back inhalers um, and then a constant reassessment to see whether they're improving. The moderate to severe group have an oxygen requirement, so should be immediately placed into oxygen and then should have the back-to-back therapy that we talked about in the viral-induced wheeze uh, category where they get salbutamol and atrovent uh, nebulizers uh, 10 to 20 minutes apart. Each one could be a re- reassessed each time to see if the patient's improving. And after three, if there's been no improvement, then you need to consider escalating your management. The life-threatening group need definitive support early and quickly. This will include your paediatric intensive care colleagues, but again, they should still be given salbutamol nebulizers. IV access should be obtained, oxygen should be put on, um, and they should be monitored very, very closely and very carefully. I think, again, with a mild to moderate group with uh, salbutamol inhalers, um, we uh, shouldn't be afraid to be giving 10 puffs at a time. Um, often, often the parents come in and say, well, I've told the nursery that they should give two puffs if they get on well. Well, if you give two puffs, you might as well chuck some holy water and say a few Hail Marys for all the good it's going to do. So if you think about the dosing of uh, your salbutamol, 10 puffs of 100 micrograms, that equals one milligram that you're delivering into the air chamber. Um, if you think about your standard nebulizer dose, that's anywhere between 2.5 milligrams to 5 milligrams. Uh, and so you really can't overdose on a salbutamol inhaler. And so uh, really that education should be passed on to, uh, to the parents that 10 puffs or no puffs. Yeah, I think that's very true. So I think in the acute exacerbation of asthma that's brought into the hospital, um, that's very different uh, from uh, the child running around at home and getting a bit short of breath after some exercise in which two puffs may be enough. We're talking about children here, even in the mild to moderate group, that might have 50% reduction in their peak flow. So that's a significant reduction. And so in order to get the reversibility, you're gonna need a significant dose of salbutamol and we'd recommend 10 puffs. Okay, uh, and Phil, is there a role for steroids now? So, um, if they're a confirmed asthmatic, or you strongly suspect this is is a first presentation of asthma, then steroids do have a role in the management of the child with asthma. And the reason for this is because of the pathophysiology behind asthma. So, essentially, it is your mucus plugging, it's your uh, airways edema and also it is uh, your bronchoconstriction as a result of irritation. So the steroid element will focus on the management of your bronchial mucosa edema. Okay, the chat, so um, inhalers, so we've looked at the, the, the more moderate size, so now we're going into the severe uh, presentation, I suppose this is where we're breaking out our nebulizers again, is that right, Colin? So yeah, in the moderate to severe group, uh, they've got an oxygen requirement, and it's very simple, if you have an oxygen requirement, you give the patient nebulizers, you don't have an oxygen requirement, then they can have inhalers. So in this moderate to severe group, uh, where they've got increased work of breathing, an oxygen requirement due to low saturations, then they, they should be given nebulizers. And again, uh, patients should be monitored, but we'd often say give back-to-back nebulizers in this moderate to severe group. So that's uh, salbutamol, get protropium, tw- 10 to 20 minutes apart, three of those, 
and reassess. Your patient should be improving at that point. It's important to have a look at their respiratory rate, their work of breathing, their oxygen saturations, uh, and, their, and see if their conscious level is still appropriate so they're still talking and able to talk to you, hopefully now in more fuller sentences than they were when they arrived. So not in terms of the uh, severe, but more for your life-threatening um, uh, patients. So those. So you, so, so you need to consider which patients uh, out of your hundreds that you'll see over the winter months are at risk of developing life-threatening uh, asthma. So uh, typically the teaching here is that if they've had previous uh, near-fatal asthma, so that's basically an ITU admission or actual intubation, so those that are on three or three or more different classes of uh, anti-asthma medications, if there's a, a heavy use of um, beta-2 agonists, um, or there's a repeated attendance to the ED for asthma care, particularly in the last year, um, those that are deemed to have brittle asthma, and we'll talk about brittle asthma in a short while, um, and uh, also uh, those with uh, parental smoking. Okay. And so, um, you know, we've given those back-to-back nebulizers, our patients um, still not improving, they're deteriorating, or they may have actually presented with those features of, of uh, severe to life-threatening asthma. Um, what's our management plan then, Phil? So in terms of after you've given your back-to-back nebulizers, then it always takes time to get any intravenous preparation ready. So carry on with your salbutamol, uh, ipratropium back-to-back, um, once you've hit your three ipratropium, though, I would suggest that you just continue with the salbutamol just because the side effect profile versus the benefit of the actual drug uh, increases there, thereafter. Um, so once you've uh, obtained your IV uh, access, you have a choice of uh, essentially two drugs. You can either go straight for a salbutamol IV bolus or you can uh, stick with your good old favourite of IV magnesium sulfate. Yeah, so I think uh, we just recently changed our guidelines to give IV magnesium sulfate as a first line here, uh, and then the salbutamol bolus after that might well differ in different centres around the country. Um, And as we've said in the viral-induced WEAS talk, the evidence for magnesium is uh, hopefully going to come through at some point, but there's not very much at the moment. But certainly there is some evidence uh, that a salbutamol bolus does uh, cause some improvement in patients with it exacerbations of asthma. Okay, and uh, is there anything else intravenous-wise we can give our patients if they're still not improving? So again, our, our friend aminophilin, so a loading dose uh, and then uh, followed by uh, an infusion. Obviously, be careful for those that are already on the theophylins because you shouldn't be giving a loading dose to this group because of the narrow therapeutic window. And this is a group that probably gets some IV hydrocortisone as well, so I'm not sure if you mentioned that, but if you're given IV magnesium, normally give IV IV hydrocortisone alongside it and it's important at this point to shout for help so I don't think it matters how experienced you are at this point you've got an incredibly sick child so um, they've got life-threatening signs of asthma not responding immediately to inhaled therapy call the paediatric intensive care unit and get some support. So Phil uh, you briefly mentioned uh, brittle asthma Um, what is brittle asthma? So uh, brittle asthma is essentially a, a form of asthma um, that is characterised by the fact that uh, the individual gets recurrent and severe attacks. It's essentially uh, under the branch of uh, the difficult uh, difficulty to control asthmatic. 
Um, um, but the, these patients make up about 5% of your asthmatic population. Okay. And we did have to do a little bit of Googling to find that one out to get a, a particular definition. Um, I should point out Colin has had to leave us to go to do some uh, junior induction, so there'll only just be two voices from now on. The two best voices. Absolutely. Uh, so Bristol Asthmatics, I suppose, provide a, an extra special challenge then in the emergency department. Well, I mean, certainly in terms of asthmatics in general, anyone who presents with asthma should be regarded as having an acute uh, severe asthmatic attack until proven otherwise. I think that's the safest way to approach uh, your asthmatic patients, uh, principally because uh, asthma is so common, um, you see so many presentations, and really a lot of the presentations you see are very mild, moderate, really severe, uh, and therefore you can get a bit blasé. So if you approach every patient as if they're potentially acute severe, I think you can't go wrong. So I suppose we also need to think about uh, discharge criteria and, and when we might feel like we are able to discharge a patient either from the emergency department or the, the criteria that the medical team will be looking at uh, to discharge a patient. Yeah, so certainly we have uh, defined criteria. So essentially, uh, pretty much like the viral induced wheezes, they need to be out of oxygen, uh, have no oxygen requirement whatsoever. Uh, the, re the patients really need to be going between three and four hours uh, between inhaled uh, salbutamol therapy. Um, so essentially that's the, the, the mainstay of your discharge criteria. Um, the point at which you discharge them, uh, they should be given a prescription for some oral prednisolone uh, to complete over three to five days. Um, you need to review their inhaler technique or the caregiver's inhaler technique and it's good practice to document that you've done that and that you're happy that the inhaler technique is correct. Um, the other thing that the medical team would be doing is to uh, review the need for regular treatment and the use of an inhaled uh, corticosteroid. Um, uh, but one of the, the, the most important things is to have a, a written asthma plan um, because as we know we tend to remember seven bits of information um, when you're in a stressed environment that probably goes down to about three so you could give the most beautiful discharge summary verbally but the moment they step out the door all they'll remember is the first and the last thing you said so if you have something written down for them then it's useful to have that on the fridge for them to refer to um, a safety netting advice always good from the emergency department when you're discharging your patients what to look out for and again this can be part of your uh, written asthma plan but essentially, what I tend to tell my patients uh, and their caregivers is that if their requirement for inhaler therapy is uh, less than every three hours, then they need to represent so that we can reassess them. And also, it's good practice to get them followed up with uh, uh, the GP or if there's a, a nurse-led uh, asthma uh, clinic, either at the GP surgery or in the hospital, then again, uh, that is good, uh, good management of your asthmatic. Okay. I think it's um, important to point out the, the um, Royal College um, Clinical Standards Audit for Asthma uh, clearly mentions about that discharge planning, checking the inhaler technique, GP follow-up, and, and like you said, a, a, a an asthma plan mm. for, for the home. Yeah. That was Take Orally, the Wheezy Child Episode 3, Asthma. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter where we'll put up links to guidelines mentioned and you can contact us there to suggest topics you'd like to see covered in future episodes. For more information on education and research opportunities within emergency medicine, acute medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.